My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD Podcast. This week in the studio with me, a retired Sergeant Major with a combined 29 years of professional service to both the United States Marine Corps and the United States Army. Serving in numerous positions ranging from a scout sniper to National Security Agency Access Operations Officer. He's also conducted operations with Southcom, CENTCOM, AFRICOM, UCOM, and SOCOM, and also the famed Special Missions Unit. His life took a turn after he lost two teammates in a one-month time period to suicide. My guest decided that after that, not being able to make sense of these losses, that it was time to be an example and get help. Fast forward to life after two stellate ganglion blocks and being a team member with the Military Special Operations Family Collaborative, a group that enables the success of SOF warriors and families through collaborative health and well-being research and programs. He's here to tell his story of success and failure. It's my honor to introduce Eric Miaris. What's going on? Not much. Just an honor to be here. I appreciate the invite and such a great intro. Yeah, I, uh, I'm so happy that you're here. You and I kind of hooked up on Instagram, talking to each other. I found out that you listened to the show, and I wanted you to come on and talk. Um, we talked a lot between me and you about Stellate Ganglion Block and, and different things like that. But as I started looking through your story and reading stuff that you had written, it's amazing from where you came from to where you ended up today. And when I say where you came from, I mean all the way back when you were a kid where you came from. So your family immigrated from Cuba in 1971, and your mother was pregnant at the time with you. Now, luckily, you say that you caught the last flight under the Castro administration. If you know anything about it, can you talk about your family's life before in Cuba and then as you came here, the reasons why and then what happened after you got here? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, so what I, I do know um, is we were poor, um, you know, and so education-wise, because it always kind of, it's resound, it's uh, at the top of my mind, especially now with my 16-year-old, uh, they were only only able to accomplish a six-degree uh, six uh, education, and that went for my mom, that went for my grandma, my grandparents, uh, and, and most of the rest of, of the family, which we, we had a pretty extended family because of my my grandmother and the children that she had, so my mom's brother and sisters. Um, and so my father, actually, my biological father, he actually was a police officer um, in Cuba. Um, and so obviously I think he he had a good education, but he stayed in, in Cuba um, and my mom and dad never married. And so when there was this window of opportunity for them to come when my mom was pregnant, they, they got on that flight uh, and they headed to to America, um, and they were they were welcomed with uh, open arms when when they got here. Now, here's the question that I have for you. Um, I you know I, I hear about your father and then your stepfather when you were here. Now, your father wasn't in your life a lot. 
I, I think it affected some stuff later on, but I, I want to talk about you saying that you would have been raised differently if you would have been left in Cuba. Now, other than the obvious reasons of why it would be a different family life, um, is there a way to explain how it would be different? Like the opportunities, because your actual dad was there, stepdad was here. Would it have been better, worse? Uh, do you have any idea what it would have been like, or do you just kind of go on, hey, it turned out okay, so let's roll with that? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, I, I'd like to say it was probably because my father was um, what was a police officer. Um, that's one aspect of it. So I don't I don't know if it was sort of volunteer um, or was pre sort of Castro time frame. Um, and then I, I did know later on. I mean, probably as of recently more so. Um, and and just to preface that, so for probably the last thirty years, it was a lot of the background of my family in Cuba that I really didn't want to know. I really didn't ask uh, because of what, especially once I left the Marine Corps and came into the army and, uh, and more of sort of having those jobs that had a clearance. Uh, I, I kind of, I did create a barrier uh, between my family in Miami uh, and understanding, you know, our extended family in Cuba. And I, I didn't know how that would play out, but I knew I wanted to create barriers early on. Um, and so I did end up finding out that um, I think it was uh, one of my uncles um, had worked for the Cuban government, had you know done some technology and and and, and I think worked his way to Russia. Um, and, and so I say that I, I just from probably some understanding of my uncles and the way that they were created from my mom and my aunts that have talked to me about them, um, and just kind of in probably more of as a recent post-retirement, just kind of self-reflecting uh, on who I am as a person uh, compared to who I became to serve uh, this country. Um, I guess there's something in my DNA, right? From your mom and your dad, my mom was, you know, and, and so those things that interest me, I figured they probably would have interest me as a, as a boy or a man in Cuba. So probably I would have had the same passion um, probably just on that other, on, on the island. I think it's interesting that you say that, though, because I read that you knew about service to your country because of your stepfather being part of the Bay of Pigs invasion. But it's interesting that you say that if you would have stayed there, you probably would have fallen along the same lines and stuff. But it seems like to me it's a different thing because you said you didn't know whether your father was kind of conscripted in or mm -hmm. whether he took part in it. And you knew that your stepfather had a major role in it or you know he he chose to be a part of it so I, I wonder when you talk about father versus stepfather who you kind of took more yes you have the biological from your father but it seems like you took more from the stepfather in that life of service because for all you know it could have necessarily not been a life of service it could have been something that was thrust upon him absolutely no, you're absolutely right um, it definitely, um, my stepfather, um, had the greatest amount of shaping. I, I, I did end up seeing my dad, I think maybe a total of three or four times, uh, in my life. Right. Uh, um, and so I can definitely tell you that the person I am and, and how I grew up and what I aspired to be, even, even to today, as I, as I, as I still talk to him and see how he lives his life at his age. Uh, and by the way, and if I, if you hadn't read it before, I mean, he's, he's, totally blind he's been blind for i think maybe over 20 something years right and it's just an, an, a still amazing person his character 
even blind. And so I kind of reflect on that. So to, to your point, uh, absolutely. He had a great amount of shaping. Um, you know, w- when I was a kid, I had my grandparents and my uncles. Um, and then I met him by the time I was eight. So that kind of more of a formative age. And after that, I just, I, I knew I just wanted to be like him. And so there, that was part of the patriotism and, 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 and however it, it may have worked him maybe helping my grandparents and my mom sort of shape how I grew up in the streets of Hialeah and Miami and the activities, you know, the Boy Scouts, Civil Air Patrol, and the things that I did, that that's where I, I also got that, that more open patriotism, because uh, he was always very quiet about about things. But, you know, I, I, I did kind of learn. So, but But, I mean, to his point, being very quiet about his patriotism and stuff, that was kind of the thing you had to be in Cuba. You couldn't really be patriotic unless you were following the rule at hand. And so I I can understand where that comes from now being raised by uh, immigrants, but also from a blended home, I started thinking about your childhood and I want to know kind of how that affected, because not only are you from a blended family and you're learning how to, you know, incorporate these two families together, Uh, kind of Brady Bunch style, but you're also being raised by immigrants that are new to the country. And as you know, today, we still continue the battle legal versus illegal. We talk about that all the, all the time. So being in Florida, being from Cuba, being raised by the immigrants and the blended, how did that affect you? Was it something that you really grew from, or was it something that kind of uh, maybe put a chip on your shoulder a little bit? I would say I definitely didn't have a chip. Uh, you know, it's interesting because Hialeah um, is where, um, till today, I, I want to say, because I was just recently there about a year ago for my 50th birthday. Um, and it felt and looked like just like when I was a, a kid, right? Like it's the, the one city that brings in um, a lot of the immigrants when, when they come in, the Cuban uh, predominantly. Um, and, and they sort of hustle and, you know, and, and they're making their way and then they sort of move out and, and, and beyond. So when I was a kid, I, I can tell you, I don't think I knew any difference uh, at all. Um, it, it may have also been that um, my grandparents, whatever they did and however they afforded, I know they worked hard because they instilled that in me as a young kid. Um, I went to private school. And so I went to private school um, that was a bilingual school. English and Spanish transparently to me. It was just English and Spanish from from the from the moment you walked in through the gates. Um, it's used to call Lavernia Bilingual School. It's no longer it exists there. Um, and then they would um, teach us both cultures. I learned everything about you know the Amer- uh, about the United States. We still studied stuff about Cuba, predominantly more about the United States. Um, but that helped fuse. Um, who I was and, and who I was as a Cuban, right? And then when I went back home, all the kids and all the kids in the neighborhood and even the activities, if I went to gymnastics or judo, it was transparent. I mean, it, it, looking back as I traveled you know, ar- around the world, I'm like, okay, well, that was the only place where you can speak Spanglish and it is like an official language, right? Um, but that kind of just kind of set it in my way. So. I never saw anything different um, till I left to the Marine Corps. And then I started to meet people from different places. I mean, I met people from Louisiana, California, New York. And then that's when I really started to understand that there was 
even from Latinos or other minorities, they were different than those that I grew up with in Hialeah or, or sort of the greater Miami. So do you think when you go into the military, do you think you see uh, more, I don't want to use the word sinister side, but maybe a more dark side to the culture because you are seeing all of these different people. And, and I've talked about it before on the show when you go to basic and, and when you, <laughs> when you're new to it, you see some crazy things of people that you didn't even think existed. So did you maybe see a different side of it, a, a, a darker side to it than you saw back in Hylia? I did to an extent. I, I want to say it was interesting. Um, and again, it could have just been just because it was such a culture shock for, for me, right? Le- leaving uh, Hialeah straight to the Marine Corps. Um, and again, and, and it may be the time frame. And so this was September, September of 1991. And when I got there, I remember meeting all sorts. But I do remember being instilled, um, you know, hey, you're all going to be green. Some of you are light green. Some of you are dark green from the beginning. And so from the beginning, that's what uh, and I, and I, and I took in that, that Marine Corps DNA early on. Um, and, and as I mentioned, I, I, I wanted to serve this country. I wanted to go in the Marine Corps and I also needed to get out of the streets of Miami or I would have ended up, you know, one of three circumstances, right? Uh, one of them not very favorable. So I welcomed going into the Marine Corps and I just wanted to do well, right? Like I drank, the, if you would, the proverbial Kool-Aid. Um, so if there were other things to my left and right, maybe I was too naive or, or just too excited to be there um, and that I, I didn't see it. Maybe I did see it later on when I went to the School of Infantry, uh, to Marine Corps School of Infantry, and then went to become a, another MOS that I did. Um, then maybe I probably started to acknowledge it, but I think I was just happy-go-lucky at that point. It seems like you talk about that throughout your whole life and anything that you do. And it, it seems like such a contradiction to me because as we'll talk later on, you seem to have been happy your whole life, but there was that thing right underneath the surface the whole time. So when you go in the Marines you go to infantry school, but then you become a snout, uh, scout sniper, uh, and then you start doing counter drug operations. So, of course, speaking Spanish, all those kind of things paid off for you. Um, where were those operations taking place? So the the counter drugs with Joint Tech Force Six that was actually in California. So that was uh, along the, the mountains of, of California. And so, just to kind of back up one second, when, when I came in the when I first did my contract. Uh, that I have a, the only chip I think I do have is probably uh, towards recruiters, right? <laughs> and, I, and I've mentioned this in one of my I posts. I think a lot of people have those. Well, I, yeah, I got, I, I got sucker punched, right? So because I, my first contract was, my initial contract was active duty. And fast forward, you know, my recruiter, which was, actually, he wasn't Cuban, he was Puerto Rican. Uh, love him the same, but, you know, it was that last minute change of, hey, I, I can get you out three months earlier after you graduate, except you're going to go to, uh, yeah, we're going to get you out early. I was like, okay, that sounds good. And then there was the, but, but you're, you know, and I didn't hear, I didn't hear the details of it, you know, and then at the end it was, and then we'll get you back on active duty. And so that was coming into the reserves, right? Uh, and so when I first came in, I ended up being a tow gunner. And so I did that for a little while, and then I moved around throughout um, the reserves, 
essentially trying to get on active duty and undo the problem. So I went from being a tow gunner, being an Anglico, and then I ended up in uh, the state platoon as uh, serving as a scout sniper and then going through the training. And so I was just fortunate that, I, and I might've been a volunteer or something we were asked to do, which was this uh, attachment to joint uh, JTF-6 um, with essentially law enforcement in, along California. So we were there for a month, uh, but that's essentially the mission is uh, as a two man team, it was, you know, spend a couple of days in and uh, go find either the marijuana uh, labs or the meth labs. Um, and that was an eye opener for me. When you see that, though, you you kind of get a different view of the United States because, you know, you join the military. I think everyone kind of joins military to see the world and they don't really think that there could be stuff going wrong in their country. I guess you could say it like that. And then you go to California and you start running these drug operations, knocking down labs, and you see how bad it actually is that it's not just across the border. It's it's in our backyard. And so when you start looking at that, what are your thoughts when you see stuff like that? Because I know you didn't join the Marines to do that, but as you see it and it's kind of exciting and, and you're starting to get that, that thrill out of the Marines, what are you thinking staying, leaving, moving forward, trying to do something else? That, that's a really good question. So I, I want to say that during that point, I was probably in the middle of my Marine career. Uh, and that was one of probably the most fulfilling aspects of it, right? Because you get to get that training. Um, and above that for me is this constant, you know, wanting to get on active duty and and move on with the train, right? And 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 go do go do that. So it's kind of stuck between going to college and then dropping out of college to go to Airborne or some school in support of building a military career. And when I uh, essentially, I think it was only maybe two or four of us that got to go do this from the greater platoon. So that was an honor to be chosen to do that. And and the, uh, the teammate that I had, uh, we just worked really well together. I want to say that the eye opener aspect of it was, oh God, these people want to essentially harm us. And I mean that because there was booby traps, right? And so nowhere in the in, in, in Marine Corps basic training, infantry, tow gunner, or any of the other stuff that I had done at that point was that being taught because that was kind of more on the counter drug stuff that isn't standard curriculum during that time. That was kind of literally OJT. I want to say I probably did a two or three day, uh, you know, defense intelligence agency drug counter drug course. And then it was straight to to go meet your liaison officer uh, with the law enforcement agency. Oh, and here's this thing called Posse Comitas, right? Um, so, you know, the big the big things was for me, and again, coming from the streets of Miami, I grew up around drugs, right? I grew up around uh, knowing friends that went down that way, friends that ended up in jail, or myself, you know, being in a couple of binds where I'm like, okay, this is why I had to join the, the military or, or, or ultimately a there was a high propensity I probably would have ended up going down the wrong road. So now I'm in the in in California, in the U.S. and and yeah, I get to could, you know play Marine, play two man scout sniper team. You know, I think it looked like some Tom Clancy movie. And we're gonna go look for this stuff <laughs> until you find you know that first no crap booby trap. And this is between two trees. It's uh, 
I don't know if it was fishing wire, it was just a steel wire. And at the other side of it, I remember at that point crawling as we're getting close and there's a shot off shotgun taped or, you know, on a tree. And so that to me was actually very impactful. Interestingly, I think I actually talked about that, you know, now 29 years later when I'm, I'm preparing to retire and I'm at the National uh, Intrepid Center of Excellence or they're doing this whole PTS all the way back to like a childhood. I'm like, I do remember being scared shitless <laughs> when I was in California looking for drugs and, and this lady's like, well, but everything else that you've gone through, well, I'm like, well, now you're, you're you know, you're, you're taking me back in my memories and in my psych. So sorry, this went a little bit long-winded, but that, that ingrains, I learned early on, you know, survivability. I learned on that, you know, and, and that I would later on then in seven special forces group also do stuff for counter drugs. Um, and then later on in the, in the unit involved with similar stuff at a different level. So crawling around the mountains of California, you know, looking for meth labs and marijuana, like at the end, I learned that that's somebody's livelihood. Someone's going to protect it. And someone's going to do something that you're probably not thinking about. And be careful where you step because you might step on a bear trap. Uh, you know, so that's a good question. <laughs> well, and, and to kind of tack on to that, you know, in that scout sniper position, that's a very interesting dynamic to work with, especially as a young guy. It's you and your partner out there, whether you're sniper or your spotter form. That's a very unique dynamic to work with. And then when you throw in the fact, like you said, where you're coming across uh, booby traps and learning for the first time kind of in your young life, like, hey, there's people out here to get me. How did that impact you later on? Because you had to, like you said, when you get brought back, you had to have thought of that stuff later on as you joined special forces and different things like that. It has to put your head in a different mind state. It, it did. I, and I, I want to say that it was, as I mentioned earlier, so, you know, posse comatose. So before that, anything you did at the, at the equivalent of the, you know, the 29 Palms or the JRXs, whatever they were for the Marine Corps, that's all fake landia, right? Like it's, you know, you're looking at the, at either a tow missile or when I was a forward observer doing, uh, you know, Anglico calling uh, naval gunfire, it's just kind of pretend, you know, but when you're actually calling in when you called in the site and so i remember this one mission if you would during it, it, we would go out for about two to three weeks right so it's like a two-day infill of just you and your buddy whatever you can take and the heaviest thing i think was the big the big plugger the gps that was like about that big uh, so and, and that was the number one thing we did and ammunition was the least amount of stuff that we carried but once that phase of that one operation, I remember that then the aspect of it was they're going to come, uh, and I don't know if it was a DA or whatever, whoever they were, they were going to come and take the lab. And what we were going to do is once they were in the, in the air and they landed and they started to do their work, we went into an overwatch position, right? Because we, we had located, we called back, and then we sat there for about a day um, just observing everything. And then the helicopters come in. Well, once they come in, give or take, then they would initiate that posse comatose. And so now we're looking down that scope and you're there to protect that police officer. And then it, it sinks. And we had learned about what that would be, but you're just like, okay, that's probably not going to happen in my, my, my little time out there. 
but it did. And so now I'm looking down the scope at these guys doing that raid. And I'm like, I'm just a young kid. So I don't know, 18, three years. And I'm looking down the site and I'm like, okay, well, A, obviously don't hit the police officer. Don't hit that. Right. Like all of these things are going on. So as a young, as a, you know, a young Marine in that position with my buddy and you're tired, I, I went through that very fast. And I want to say that, um, at least in the Marines, you know, the stuff that I did um, in, in the in the state between the scout sniper wasn't anything that these young Marines are doing now, but it really took it. It, it, it defined me. It, I, I really paid attention to that responsibility behind, you know, behind that sniper rifle. Um, and, you know, you're calling something in or you've and in that particular case, you've got to make the determination that if that officer is in trouble, you don't have the authorities till that second to react. So it's your rules of engagement are that eh, it's that gray area. And so that taught me early on what it was to be in the gray area, which then later on, I would do that for 23 years, essentially, always in the gray area. Well, let's talk about what you talk about being a young guy and having to make those decisions. Because like you said, when you're doing your Ford Observer stuff, it's kind of play, you're you're hitting fake targets and things like that. Now you're on real world missions. And as the GWAT came and, and has been around for as long as it has, you're starting to get back into this thing where you're getting young guys that are joining the military, specifically going to special forces to do special operations and things like that. So you get a very much younger crowd than you would agree than you were when you joined special forces. Mm -hmm. So in thinking back on that situation and these new guys coming in, what are your thoughts on that? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Does it build a better soldier because you get all the bad habits out of the way? What are kind of your thoughts overview of it? That's good. Um, that's a great question. And so um, I did do um part of our our um, training pipeline just just to be simple and so I would have a lot of uh, hands-on on to for several years on the new generations that came in to my previous command um, and the one thing by the time we did it we tried to explain and this is at a one at a one-to-one -one level which with the you know the guy or the girl that we were mentoring um, and after a certain phase, once they're, you're, you're seeing these young guys being or girls being accepted, women, women, excuse me, being accepted, you're kind of now doing that mentoring, right? Even though at the last day they can not be accepted, you're still mentoring this soldier, this individual, right? And so a lot of them, what we, I would put in would be that ability for that person to think and to understand um, we, we taught a lot by uh, kind of like the way the old, you know, the Indians taught, right? Like around the campfire of not, hey, this is what I've done, but here's the possibilities of the things that you will be involved in, right? Uh, because RG Watt, my, my last 20 years, I can't say with just Afghanistan and Iraq, it was global on a constant deployment. I, I would have to almost take off Afghanistan, G Watt, put it down, put another chip if you would, and then go do something else. So you had to have that mentality. And that's part of the screening process. That's part of the, the assessment selection and then the mentoring and tell the folks, hey, this, this is not a video game. This is not what you're seeing on TV, what you're seeing on Instagram. This isn't, you know, 
you're you're not going to be wearing this cool guy clothes. And 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 I want to say for the young guys, that's almost how you had to relate to them, right? Or maybe I think for the older generations, maybe you were using different different ways to to get the point across. And so we always would teach um, in in a given course almost every mission that was going on globally and and the psychology behind it and the mental aspects and the differences to to really enforce going hey you may go and do three weeks and i'll get to the point here and you're going to run around doing stuff you know with the, the other tiers you know supporting direct action or, or any of these other missions and then when you come back i need you to flush that out reset and then i'm going to send you on a strategic mission and so to to your point for for the next guys and in, and in particular what's going on now with with Ukraine and Russia, you know, I, I think I actually posted something like that about six months ago, um, you know, and it was just a photograph of sort of clothing and the mindset going, hey, guys, this is, you know, and for, this is what you're gonna need to be ready for it is that ability, don't get focused on just going out and doing, you know, supporting direct action missions or this kill, you know, these fine fix finish. It's the, in special operations, it's gonna be completely different. Hopefully that answers what you're, which you're getting after. Yeah, I, I think it does, but I want to go drill a little deeper into that. And because we're going to talk about mental health a lot between you and I, cause that's what kind of brought us together talking about it. I guess to drill down a little further in it, does that make them more mentally prepared? Because I think that, you know, you talk about uh, people failing people. I think the military failed, um, at certain levels of preparing you mentally for this stuff. Yeah. They can tell you that you're going to go run these missions for the next 20 years and you're going to do everything and you're going to be okay. But then when it's all said and done, and like you say, Pandora's box opens up, it's a different world out there. It's a jaded world. It's an angry world. It's a, it's a lot of, you know, nighttime fears that come back. So are we making with that mentoring? Are we making them more mentally prepared? Are we getting better mentally prepared people from the start? What are we doing on that front? I'd like to say that we're starting to identify that we haven't done a good job. And I'll get to the point. It's because we're having a lot of suicides. We're having a lot of suicides um, committed by, you know, highly trained, highly screened, highly, you know, if you throw all those words in there, but that person who's supposed to have that mental toughness is committing that suicide, right? And, and as you mentioned in the opening, and that and that's what just was the snowball effect for me. So, but I, I, I'm you know, and hope is not a viable course of action. That's kind of why I'm also part of this MSOF and and, and, and I'm listening to what SOCOM's doing and the CX doing. I think they're slowly doing it. I I, I don't want I want to say it's not fast enough. Um, you know, I, I don't know because I left the force and that's one of the things is what once you leave, right? Um, all I can say is I'm hoping to do it and 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 that's what I'm trying to do from my side reaching back. Um, but as we know, the military is probably not at the speed that we would like it, uh, to build that, that mental or, or have folks understand that they need to, you know, have these tools, um, in, in place to take care of these soldiers, uh, and Marines. 
Don't you think it's important, though, and and I'm speaking from a law enforcement standpoint, but I want to tie it to your military service, where you say something kind of disheartening right there, where you say, once you're gone, you're kind of gone. They they cut you out of the, the pie, and you're pretty much done. Uh, you can help on the side when people come to you, but you can't go back in. Don't you agree, though, that it's a good idea? Maybe you can't train for the battle that's going on there, but you can train them for the battle that's going on back home, um, whether that be in law enforcement, whether that be in military. Why do you think it is that, once again, law enforcement and military cut those guys out and just do not let them? Is it because they're scared that it's going to do something to the mental toughness or make people think what is it that they won't let them come back in and teach them this is how you're going to deal with it on the backside because all this stuff you're doing right now is not going to matter when you're 50 55 60 years old it doesn't matter yeah i i don't you know so there there are just some some standard right like i i can't go you know there are certain organizations that for security reasons um you're you're kind of read off um, but that, you know, they're, they're, these networks, these connections, um, are, are pretty tight, right? Like when you come from some of these organizations, for the most part, you stay connected. The smart leaders, which are generally our friends, right? So the, the leaders that are there today are, are, you know, at least from my organizations, they're, they're guys that I grew up in the organization. And for some part, if you're enlisted, uh, the officer in charge. It was probably at some point you had some some aspect in 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 in, in welcoming them into the organization and help mentoring them. Um, I I, I want to say that those that then have left, for example, myself or those that uh, I'm following their footsteps, right? Like the Tom Saddleys, the Tom Spooners, and some of these other guys that I look up to um, because they are helping the force, you know, and, and so in that aspect, um, I, I, and I, I am happy to see how a lot of commands from the Navy, from the SEALs, the, the S, um, Air Force Special Operations, the Marine Corps, and even the Army are reaching out um, individually. And I want to say these are some key leaders are reaching out to individuals, um, to, just for example, as myself and others, uh, to listen to our opinion, right? Because I think we're reaching that point where we are stepping up again and saying, hey, uh, I'm trying to help. It's, I'm just one more tool in the toolbox. I'm trying to give you a perspective. Um, I don't want another brother to die or another young guy to die. And, and I think your mental health is going to be extremely important in, in future war. So um, you may want to you might want to just at least listen to us or, or a perspective. Hopefully that answers what, what you're trying to get at. Um, I think it's, I, I want to say I, it is getting better from what we're seeing the leaders at the SOCOM level, at the at least at the USOC level um, in the Army side and what I've seen from the Marine Corps. They are listening, uh, and in the Air Force, excuse me, they are listening to those that, that came before them and are, are, are trying to provide um, advice um, or, or share. Yeah. And, and the way I look at it, you know, and once again, speaking from a law enforcement point of view, um, what you see is you, you get told, hey, if you think you're having a problem, if you think you're having PTS or whatever it may be, come and talk to someone, maybe someone that's been through it. But there's still 
not as bad, but there's still that stigma there that is blocking a lot of people. And I think that's what's leading down the wrong road, which is why we need those guys to go, listen, I've been there, I've done it, and it doesn't mean anything. Now, what matters is you. And I, I think that I will say it in law enforcement. I think we're still a long ways away from that. I agree. I think we're we're a long way just because, you know, these are humans. This isn't hardware, right? These are humans. And the, the thing with the human is there's, there's secondary and tertiary, meaning there's a spouse, there's children, right? There's friends, there's up and coming uh, next generations that are seeing how you know, for law enforcement or, 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 or what they're seeing on social media of guys having issues. So I think it is, it's, I want to say it's critical, right? Cause these are human beings at that side. And so there is something you said about, you know, like the police officers and, and the guys and there, there are, especially with what we just talked about STB and, and some of these other treatments, I want to say it's, and, and for example, um, a lot of these other nonprofits are actually, even though it's probably more on the quiet side, it's just not so socially available, but they're coming back and, and they're providing training and they're providing help to these units. Um, and I want to say that some of it has to do of people that know each other and they trust, because there's a lot that has to do with trust, right? And they're, they're trusting that, hey, there's former CSM, there's former two, three-star general or colonel, whoever they were, is going back and reaching to their peers that where they came from and said, hey, you, you may want to listen. Uh, and I, I think that's actually working really well. So it's you know not only from the bottom up, but from the other angle, um, having these folks listen. Well, let's talk about, I want to talk about some of the traumas that have you have dealt with along the way, because I think it's going to all kind of culminate in the end. I want to talk about Ecuador first, where you received your first Purple Heart. Um, once again, counter narcotics missions, um, in a convoy and your ambush. Can, can we go over that story, what you were thinking then, and then how it kind of molded what you were going to do the rest of your time? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so what was I thinking was, uh, probably a couple of hours prior to that, nothing was going to happen right uh, at that point. Uh, here's me just thinking, you know, I'm a former Marine who is uh, now in the army. I'm a military intelligence uh, professional, kind of enjoying what I'm, what I'm doing in that stage of, of my career. So I think at that point, I've probably been one year at, in SF in 7th Special Forces Group. So, you know, I, I'm enjoying what I'm doing. Um, I'm in a, I think, you know, um, there was probably, I don't know, about 30 something other, you know, the green, or there were 30 something green berets. We were you know, 20 vehicle long convoys, like nothing's going to happen to us, right? Like, again, I mean, this is just a FID mission in Ecuador. Um, it's not Colombia. So I I, uh, I had known more from, from an intel side and obviously uh, uh, open reading that uh, Colombia would have been essentially more dangerous. So you're, you're, um, your guard is a little bit down. And so our hours prior to that is, um, and, and so to, prep, you know, I was in the leading vehicle. My job was to provide force pr uh, protection uh, from a SIGINT, uh, SIGINT perspective, right? And so a couple of hours into the trip, it was just, you know, one town going, and it was just kind of normal. 
till the little hairs in the back of my hair sta- start standing up. And and I, I want to say that that was probably more of my street smarts than it was anything that I learned in the Marine Corps, maybe some experience from from the stuff that I did with counter narcotics. Uh, but it was definitely from the streets, right? And that, that was just, you start kind of getting that sense of it's not looking right, um, you know, and then right as we kind of come around that bend, uh, just to get into one aspect of it, um, I, I had gotten a, a break of squelch on, on sort of the intel side, um, which was not normal. And at that moment, I'm, I'm preparing to, or I, I went ahead and gave notification Hey, they're saying something, something's not right. And then as we come around, it's literally almost like in slow motion. Um, then we start to receive, to receive fire. And then I'm like, okay, at that point, I, I, you know, as in, in now in retrospect, I remember feeling as I went back into being a Marine, right? Cause prior to that, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm understanding, but that's not my job. Right, I was just there to do my military intelligence job, which I was very proud of doing. All the SF dudes are gonna, you know, they're gonna do their job. Uh, you know, I, um, but once we got that fire, then initially that's what that adrenaline kicked in, and I was like, okay, it's it it's time to to take to go back into the infantry realm. Do you think this is the point where you start locking away bad things in your life? I did. I put it away, but I didn't realize I put it away. Um, and, and as I've mentioned before in another interview, till I was retiring, till I, I, you know, once I, and so we'll, for, for, for um, understanding 2019 is when I asked for help and is when, when my two friends, uh, they committed suicide. And that's when I finally broke down and asked for help. And when I went to help in that next six months to a year and they're asking me all of these questions and walking me back that I then realized that I had then that was the beginning of my first major PTS, right? Like it's, it's an ambush. You're getting, you're, you're in a gunfight, you're, you know, you're danger close if you would, and, and you get shot. Um, you know, you, you, that's not, that's not, that wasn't an exercise and that wasn't a, a you know, a JTF six in California with posse commandants it's, that that was real. However, I think what transpired was I got pulled out of country two, three days later um, just because of where we were and the level of, um, A, the command wasn't ready for that. They, we were probably w- more ready for a training accident than we were for you know, a, what ended up being you know, a, a hostile engagement. And so I get flown out for whatever political reasons or medical reasons and end up back in Fort Bragg two, three days later. However, my mind and what my responsibility was still there with that team because my team at that point, the, the you know, the SOD A's, uh, Special Operations Team Alpha that were there to provide force protection and language and a, and a bunch of other um, strategic capabilities, um, I wanted to be back in that fight. So as soon as I can get out of that hospital and in my crutches and back into group, into the skiff to continue to provide force protection, that was my, that was my purpose. That was my adrenaline. Um, but the, but the incident was just locked away. Um, and I didn't think about it again for essentially 29 years. Okay. So when you say you locked it away, I get that. 
But are you doing it consciously or subconsciously? I want to say at that point that was subconsciously, right? Uh, it, it went from, oh, crap, I got shot. I'm okay. Um, I get back to the United States, and then I have this purpose, right? At that, pur- at that time, it is uh, I'm recovering, um, and I have a purpose to get back to group, to go down and continue to provide, you know, force protection, if you would, from, from Fort Bragg to the guys that were in Ecuador. And at the same time, um, I knew that I was, I had gotten accepted to go to selection. So additionally, I'm thinking, okay, you got to get ready to heal, right? So as you're, you're, so I had two, 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 two driving forces. So to your point, it was subconscious, right? The whole gunfight was just put away to the side because I had more important things to do, which was continue to help that team that was forward. Um, and then at the same time was start getting ready for, for selection. So that, that was definitely subconscious and I just put it away. See, and I would think, and the reason I asked that, I would think it would be more conscious in the beginning and subconscious later on. And the reason I say conscious is because you really have two different war fronts going on. You need to get back to your team, but you also have to heal for selection. So you couldn't be at more opposite ends of the spectrum. One keeps you here, one puts you there. Mm. So in your brain, you're constantly saying, okay, no matter which side that I'm going to, I have to put this away and move on. And then as you get through those things, then it kind of turns into a subconscious like, yeah, it was okay. So I made it through. I'm good. And, and, and yeah, you just kind of lock it away. They, you're right. Uh, there's another interesting point, which is in the beginning, they thought uh, the initial assessment, it was, that was just a... Uh, we, we just happened to stumble across, uh, you know, something. And, and so that in, in effect was also downplayed. Again, there was no war on, ter- there was no war on terrorism. This wasn't, this wasn't anything that we can tie back. You know, we were just going to go do a FID mission. Right. And so there also was an aspect of, it's a little bit different when you prepare to go to Afghanistan, Iraq, or a non-permissive environment, and you've prepared for that. Um, it, it didn't take till I think several months later where USASOC and, um, and, and the IC, the intelligence community, then figured out, no, that actually weren't just typical criminals, which is what they first thought they were. That was actually, you know, the FARC, i.e., which is what led to getting the Purple Heart, because at first they were like, oh, OK, what are we going to do with this? Right. We have an ODA that gets gets into a gunfight, right? And there was other stuff that, the, you know, the brave SF guys that were there, they took out several guys. And, and so they got their awards. I got my awards. Uh, but to get there, then they had to go from, hey, they were just thugs to know this was actually a, you know, an insurgency that, you know, uh, and I think that, w- that may have played into it where, I don't know, later on, I, I do know that I, I did pay attention to everywhere I went. So let's talk about 20 plus years of deployment. That was, you know, before that time period, before 2001, that was unheard of. I mean, there were, I've talked to a couple of guys that were going into special operations, whether that be SEAL or whatever, where they were worried they might not get to go to any battle before 2001 happened. Um, When 9-11 happens, it kind of opens up uh, all these different things. So, I want to go from enduring freedom all the way to 
you know, SOCOM and working with special missions. And, and if we can, I want to briefly, because there's so many of them briefly go over each one, but I want to see how your mind state changes from the beginning until the end and until the very end where you say it's time to step away. Absolutely. So right after, um, Ecuador, I went through selection. Um, I want to say I didn't hear anything. And then shortly after we redeployed into seven special forces group, um, to Colombia. So we went to Colombia to do a very similar, uh, FID mission. And that one, I had a little bit more of, uh, integrated role, um, because of Spanish helping the sort of the ODA with the police. Um, and so that was really good from getting, working closer with sort of that, uh, that local force, um, that later on, I, I would file that as, as a trait uh, and a capability that I, I knew that I can count on. Um, um, and then um, and then I got accepted and came back and um, came into to the course, right? Um, and then so when I started that, it just really brief, it was it was a long process. Um, and it wasn't until the last minute that I knew I had been accepted and going through that whole thing, it, uh, through the whole training part, uh, it was just, it, you know, there was points that sucked, but there was times that were, this is what I want to do, right. All the way from my childhood, all the way to my stepfather, all the way. It just, it just felt so right. Just the way I still remember my mentors and how they taught me things um, and, and opened to your point. It was, we were getting ready for everything because there was no GWAT uh, to our earlier conversation. So it wasn't just about Iraq and Afghanistan because it hadn't happened yet. It was about be prepared to do this, this, this. Uh, And a matter of fact, there's a picture that I posted on Instagram um, and it's got like 30 something pairs of shoes right? And there are a variety of shoes from sneakers to dive boots to high heels to just everything, right? And, and, and what that capture was a CSM that I'd had that in, in, I think when I first signed in, he's like, hey, be prepared to wear any of these shoes, right? The metaphor of these shoes. And so that ingrained in me. So as soon as I graduated, I, I went into sort of more of a tactical team so that's kind of where I did a lot of my liaison with uh, a lot of the other tiers, um, which was comfortable, right? Because I came from sort of more of that tech, that Marine background, had been in 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 group and and you know I already had been a little bit of a of an engagement. But then my first mission was actually a traditional, you know, non-pervasive cookie cutter what the unit does. And so that had a little bit of um, excitement in it. And so when I came back, I'm like, this is great, right? Um, that that this was really good. And then and then after and then the and shortly after that, uh, September 11 happened, and then it it just all changed, right? So at least for me, that first mission, I was able to go through why I had gone through selection, why I had gone through the course, and everything I had learned. Um, and came back and then was off to 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 the GWAT. So I'll stop there just in case there, there's something you want to expand from. No, I don't think so. I, I'm just trying to figure out, you know, you're kind of at the, not beginning, but 
close to the beginning of your special operations career. So what rank are we looking at right now? What units are you assigned with and, and all these kind of things? And, and how are you looking right before and then right after 9-11? Yeah, so I came into, when I left the Marine Corps, I was in E5, came into the Army. They made me an E4, so I had to start as a specialist. So by the time I got to group, I was an E5 um, and then got to the unit which then again, I was only in seven special forces group for two years uh, after I switched from the, the Marines into the army, went through that training. Um, and then my first assignment was seventh special forces group. And I was only there for two years. And then I came into the, the army SMU and I came in as an E5, um, went through selection in 99, uh, you know, started in, by the time I graduated it was December of 2000 and then retired as an E9 in October of 2020. Um, so yeah, so as an, as an E5 was. That's got to be crazy though, being an E5 going to the elite of the elite. I mean, that is a ton of pressure on your shoulders, not just mission sense in you though, you have the weight of the world on your shoulders and I mean, let's be honest, as an E5, yeah, you know what you're doing, but this is on a whole nother level. Yeah, I got, uh, I was told to, you know, I, I, I was told to go in that corner and draw several times, right? That was one thing that I, I will give to my mentors. They put me in my place all the time, as they would do to everyone else. So um, as I looked back, I was probably more of an idiot than I needed to be. Right. Uh, and I'm very, very fortunate that I was able to stay there 20 years. Uh, I, I got to imagine there's a secret file somewhere of where they really wanted to get rid of me. Right. Uh, uh, but no, uh, it, it was right. And so I think it was just the folks that were there, they trust the process. So, uh, you know, just to keep that simple, we trust our, our selection process. We trust our course. Um, and then we, and then definitely the mentoring, right? So by the time I got to my first team, uh, I had had um, a few restrictions just because of stuff that I had done before, but there was plenty of work. And so the guys that took me under their, show, you know, uh, under their arms um, all the time, hey, I got it, you speak Spanish, so what? Go learn, go learn Guarani, go learn French, go learn this. Oh, that's great, you're airborne. Okay, go to MFF, right? So it was just this constant proven. Um, and, and even the interesting piece was, uh, at certain times later on, probably more when I'd been there, maybe, you know, six, seven, eight years, then it wasn't necessarily rank dependent. Yeah. Someone was always in charge, but if you know what you were doing, you took lead. Right. And so that was that type of organization. However, experience was different than what you knew to do, or if you were the right, you know, you know I was always the, you know, the token little Brown guy. Right. Good. Uh, and so if, if that needed to be exploited to <laughs> being used, then then I would go do it, right? It's just, hey, Cubano, you're you're gonna go do this, or hey, you Marine, go do this, or hey, Skippy, you're the low guy, go do go do all the S four stuff. Um, so yeah, the the rank was it was interesting, but we also didn't wear the rank. You also had to earn every day, and and from day one we learned that, and so I think that's where kind of the rank almost went away in, in essence because you earn that keep every day you 
always try to do whatever you were doing better. Um, hopefully that kind of helps a little bit on that. Aspect. Do you think it's the same as a as an E five sergeant and as a sergeant major still earning that keep the exact same way? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and in particular, I would say the sergeant major because there's only so many jobs, right? Like at the end, you're still Army billets, you're still TDA, right? So at this point, in in there aren't very many folks that get to stay anywhere for twenty years, uh, and so that's a lot of creativity. And so I was very fortunate that in my pipeline, um, I probably would have extended my stay because of just, I, I was fortunate to make rank at, at a good pace. Um, however, I had diversified in technical um, and some other operational um, skills that I had developed where it gave me some more dwell time in the organization. And then I came towards the end, the last position I did, which was, I think the best position I I, um, I loved to have done. I was the CDD sergeant major for the unit. Um, and that comes with a lot of responsibility. Yeah, sure, it's, you know, the, a squadron CSM, a unit CSM comes with obviously a lot more, uh, but for me as, as I made my way in that organization, realizing the importance of capabilities to support the human, if you would, um, was a great responsibility. Can we talk about the differences in the wars that you see a a after 9-11? Can we, can we talk about the difference in Enduring Freedom, uh, Southcom, CENTCOM, AFRICOM, yep. the different areas that you're seeing in the world? Can we just get kind of a 30,000 feet view of the differences that you're going through because you and I have talked over and over in this conversation talking about wearing all those different shoes. So can you kind of fill us in on what shoes you're wearing as you're going through? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So the, 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 again, as I said, the first one in, uh, in 2000, I was initially in, um, the highest readiness, right? We, we were in the, in the highest readiness. So it's a, it's an element that, for simple terms, you're just ready to go, right? Something happens, you're ready to go. And so that means if you work backwards from being ready, uh, that's a lot of training. That's a lot of uh, approvals you've got to get, right? And so that was comfortable because it was hard skills and I enjoyed the hard skills at that point, even though I was buying away from, you know, the, the, the what will later become the little brown guy, right? Uh, uh, Hey, that that that's what that that's something you bring to the table. Um, so I would I would have to go go back to that. So the first part was that um, for about a year, because there was well, that first part, there was nothing going on. There still was not September 11th, but there were other things going on in the world at a higher level. Just to keep it simple, right? Uh, so we I lived off of a pager, um, which shaped the beginning of my relationship with my spouse, trying to explain to her what it meant to have, you know, a bag and a pager, and I could only go, you know, an hour away from where we lived. Um, that started to shape sort of my life and my 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 wife's or my my girlfriend at that time. Um, and then I went to go do sort of my, my first mission, which again, as I mentioned, um, was in the Southcom, in the Southcom area. And then September 11 happens. At, at that point, I was in BNOC, right? So, um, you know, and everybody probably has a story. I'm in there with actually one of my classmates. We're going through the land nav course thinking, God, I can't wait to get 
back to 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 you know to work so we can go on other deployments. September 11 happens. You know, we go back. We see it on the TV, and we were hoping we would get a phone call, right? Because you know we we were naive at that point and and thought that we were going to be sent home. Uh, but we had to finish. We had to finish BNOC and we catch up. And at that point, our peers, the guys that we had gone through the course with, um, and subsequently the guys at, at Fort Bragg and the guys at the beach, um, which you know coming in through our, our OTC courses together, uh, those guys are out the door. So um, I didn't get to go the first wave. I get to go back down to sort of the the SOCOM to do one more operation, and then. Let me As ask I'm you something. Back, though. Let, me, yeah. let, let me stop you for just a second. Yep. Those guys that go out the door that you know what they're doing. You said in Beanock you want to go there. Is that, is that needling at you? Is that, is that going at your head or are you, are you good with it? We're, we're, we're good with it. Um, we're good with it at that point because there was a lot of trust and still a lot of things that we didn't understand. We were still new guys, brand new guys in the team, right? So if, you know, if my team, my team sergeant or, you know, and I can't, uh, di- didn't call me, then early on I was taught, don't worry about it, Skippy. You know, you, you, when it's time for you to go, you'll be told to go. So a lot of that, I don't want to say that mental resilience, it's whether it was, hey, focus now on what you need to do, uh, which I learned early on, right? So. Yeah, we saw stuff going on because the rest of BNOC or the rest of the, the base is freaking out. We kind of knew that we came from a, a different organization and it, we you know, that we would be doing something at some point. And in fact, my the guy that I was at BNOC with, he was an Arabic speaker, right? So, and obviously I was more of the romantic language. So we knew he would be going out the door. I probably thought that at some point I would be being called, but they would be the right time in the right place. But that's a good question. Now, I, I, I didn't have that early on till we got back. And then you felt more of when that those first wave of, you know, the SMUs and the guys and the SF guys started to go out and you started to get the reports of what's going on and what they're doing. That was then new to everybody. And then you're just like, okay, now I want to go help. I want to be part of that fight because of, of what you're hearing. Um, you know, A, you wanted to be part of it, but there were, there were also undergoing some struggles that you, you wanted to be part of. Not only struggles in being a part of it, they're making history. Yeah. You know, that didn't, uh, that didn't, uh, at least for me, that didn't, that wasn't part of my thought because I had done, I was already involved in other things. Yes, this was September 11. But at the organization, there was other things going on. Right. right? It, obviously, it wasn't as, uh, uh, but there was a lot of discipline and going, hey, you're, there were still guys and teams going to all other aspects of the world. Yeah, things right. slowed down, but that didn't stop rotations. That didn't stop you from going to replace another team or other things that needed to be done. And that was very, clear right um and then we were also kind of broken down in a way that you knew you would have to go do continue your job unless the, you know w- once those guys started to burn out and then we would rep- we were cross-pollinating teams if you would but that's that's very interesting to think of it that way because i i think that people looking at it from the outside in 
they see 9-11 and that's all they think about. They don't think about everything that was going on in the world. And I guess I, I can say I'm even um, guilty of that because when you think about it and you think about everything that's going on with 9-11, you do put aside that there's still stuff going on in Malaysia. There's still stuff going on in Thailand. I mean, there's a lot of terrorist cells even that are moving around in these other countries. Um, with that, moving around with Southcom, CENTCOM, it, all those, you're addressing terrorist issues, correct? You are. And then you're also doing what I would just, for, for simplicity, just put at the strategic national security level, right? That, that, can, that then is another level, right? And so that, in, it becomes um, more distinct when you're having to take three, four months to prepare for that level of activity, which means, again, to, to sort of that analogy, hey, I'm going to take this tactical rucksack off and my and you know in this gear and in this uh, mindset and put it to the side and go and get the other mindset of what I may need to do because yeah going you know and it, and it goes back to what you're saying about the new guys it's like hey it's sometimes depending where you're at it may not just be going after you know find fix finish terrorists in Afghanistan or Iraq you may need to go work in an embassy you may need to go be a, a liaison officer at you know at, at, at an, an intelligence community you may need to go undergo a four or five month which was usually very painful you're going to go learn how to do this thing that's going to take you four and five months and you better put your mind to it because the command is sending you and one more guy and it's at that level and so that's kind of where you're going okay i got it i need to focus and that literally means just as bad as a commitment as going to go fight GWAT, that you're going to go to a training that you leave family here and you go commit to that because then you got to follow on responsibility. So I, I don't want to get too deep into your combat because I, I think that you and I really focused that, that we talked about really focusing on everything that's happening. So to, to kind of wrap up the combat things, I want to hear mental state at five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 25 years. Good. Good. Thank you. Uh, so, yeah, from the beginning, you know, five years, uh, that would encapsulate the Marine Corps. The, the, the worst part was probably the, the counter narcotics um, and really just looking down that scope for the first time, uh, either in an exercise or, you know, as a sniper um, or in, a, uh, in that uh, counter narcotics and what that meant, right? Uh, especially pre pre GWAT, and then shortly after that, the gun the gunshot in Ecuador was still kind of like I didn't believe it, and I had other things to focus on, and then that would unpack itself later on, and then so right around that five to ten, and, and I get into um, into the army into the um, special operations. First part of it, the heart, you know, the one, well, I want to say just about almost all of my trips had something. Either it was a uh, potential compromise um, in, a, in a non permissive environment or in a tactical environment, would be, you know, some sort of gun, uh, some engagement, some kind of battle. 
um, or understanding that there was losses or we were trying to, you know, uh, rescue uh, uh, folks. Um, the mental didn't really take its greatest toll till 2006, December, when um, I was in Ramadi uh, doing uh, essentially a sensitive operation and uh, were hit by an RPG within, within meters uh, and, you know, thrusted um, against an iron fence and then, you know, into just to paint that picture. That was supposed to be sort of that, you know, low, not low vis, it's more of that covert hitting within another operation, right? And so there's this larger operation sweeping through Ramada, a called on sweep. Uh, and I, I was embedded, in, you know, and, and had an element that was allowing me to, to do what I needed to do. And so, yes, it was a risky environment operating in Ramadi, but um, the way it was being handled, it, it, it wasn't like it was going to end up being the way it was. So when that RPG hit, it was a shock, right? Because I had literally just, we had just found the target, uh, left the target in its place, were walking out, and then got struck. And then, then ensued about a six hour, you know, uh, between... Uh, contact, moving, and then going up to a building, call for fire. And then for me, passing out and not realizing that I had passed out and ended up back at our, you know, at, at where we were staying at at the compound. Um, and from there, later on is then a month later, and this will get to a point, I literally went from, you know, Iraq uh, to South America and I wasn't supposed to go, but I, something had happened. And then I wasn't even processing that, right? That I had been, that I had TBIs, that I had gone through a lot of mental um, things that had, you know, that, that had taken its toll really heavily. Um, and in time, as I can look backwards, right? Because you didn't know this. And so what I, what I want to be able to say is in all of this, I, I didn't know to 2019 how bad the tires had fallen off at that point the tires had fallen off i can probably go back and say hey there were times where i was stressed or i was realizing that i was not able to pass my language test or absorb languages as fast or if i would go to very like uh, certain trade craft courses where there's a lot of memorization i was having problems with memorization um or i'm having issues with memory right like just cognitive processing because um, I didn't even pay attention to temper. So five was not bad. Five to 10 is what I probably had a lot of things happen, but had no idea. And, and again, as, as you had mentioned, you know, I would, and what happens is when we come back from these trips and it's an administrative function. And, and there's a point here, we literally come back, you fill out this travel voucher and you put it into these Melina fold, you know, these Melina colored folders, uh, and you put your travel vouchers, a bunch of documents, a bunch of things in there. You seal it. You write the name on top of it, and you put it in your safe. I had done that, I don't know, 20, 30 times in that time frame. This is where I kind of call my Pandora's box. But part of that was also going, okay, I'm putting all of these memories of what happened, let's just say, in Iraq. And I'm putting it away because now literally. I've got to go to a street. I, you're literally putting it in there, <laughs> but you're also then 
here's the other thing. You got to come back home. So you got to clear in your mind what you are and you're not going to talk about, you know, and so there's the typical or there are secrets you just can't talk about at home. But there's also things you don't want to say in front of your family because you don't want your spouse or your children to know you got blown up by an RPG. My wife did not know that I got hit with by an RPG or had well, any of these incidents um, till 2019. So for, you know, whatever amount of 15 years, she never knew. I never told them because you're also scared of your spouse going, okay, this is way too dangerous. You got to leave or we're going to get divorced, right? Because you see everybody else. So what also happens is you're putting all of these emotions, all of these fears, and you don't want to talk about it. You're putting them in that envelope and you're just locking it up. So by the time it is 2010, so now we're, we're at that 20, 25 year mark, I'm starting to identify my mentors. I'm like, man, you're, you're an asshole. Like, what is wrong with you? And those weren't like how I'm hoping the conversations are happening in the team room now. Like, Hey man, did you, did you have a traumatic brain injury? You know, like just like getting to the point of talking about PTS, talking about TBI, talking about more injuries at that point, it was like, dude, what the hell's wrong with you? Right. And, and how that also equates was, your your NCOER is is tanking, right? So that's when I'm starting to have these issues right around that 2015 timeframe. To to your to your point, that's that that you know right at that 20 uh, that 25 year mark where now I'm also from a leadership perspective going. I'm probably not going to go back out the road because I've now worked my way to do these, uh, you know, these more um, leadership percentages in the organization, but I'm starting to feel, well, my wife's telling me, you're not sleeping, you're a freaking zombie, right? Like you get up, you're, you're shaking, you're stretching, your body hurts, or I'm having these debilitating episodes, muscular skeletal, or I'm just forgetting things, right? Um, and and that was bad, right? And and those become the, what 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 is wrong with you? You need to go see. You need to go see a doctor. Ho- hopefully that kind of answers that. It, it absolutely does. But I want to go back to something you said that you don't tell your family getting blown up and because you're worried, you know, they'll do this. So, question one to that is, is that fair? And number two, is that more for you or more for them? That was more for me. So I will tell you that was selfish. Um, that was really selfish. And I didn't know that till I, till now, till later on, post-retirement, post-therapy, uh, all of this that I realized, crap, um, you know, not being able to bring, obviously, talk about sensitive stuff. That's one thing. Absolutely. To share with the family. But there's also this aspect of and I'll keep it simple here. There's certain deployments that, okay, that happened in that deployment. There's other deployments that because of the sensitivities of it, I am so happy that, well, I'm fortunate that those weren't deadlier or, or they, they weren't more catastrophic because then that would have been, that would have been much more muddier. Uh, so it became this really bad for to, to your point where we just, hit it under the table, right? We just, you keep on protecting so many aspects 
of what you're doing to it's not only protect the organization you really wanted it's kind of like a high right to continue to operate and to be at the tip of the spear is a high right you're you're hiding um the injuries you you don't even know you're in pain because you're just working your way through it right and you're just not you're not accepting certain of these things so to your point you're absolutely right i was it, it was selfish on my part and and probably to protect them but i want to say that it was more on the i was wanting to continue to operate uh and and that was probably to the left and to the right of me of the guys in the team room probably doing the same thing if you talk to them at that point you you talk to your family you bring them in of course we talked about there's certain things you you just can't talk about for security reasons are you in as bad a situation as you are at 25 years I would say probably definitely not because there were things that if I would have told them earlier and that there were things that um, I would have, we, I would have probably been able to have gotten the level of support that is available now. For example, the SGB, um, we were doing SGBs 10 years ago. I wasn't even aware. I knew I looked inside the, the med shed and I, something was going on and I walked right out. Right. And then to come find out <laughs> is that those guys and girls were a little bit smarter than I was, or they were probably had a, a, a friend or they just got picked up. Right. Or the doc realized, Hey, you're just not right. Or they answered the questions right when they went in there and then they were being treated. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's just, it, you know, it's literally a true story. As I come back and reflect going, man, I, what do you mean? I could have got an SGB 10 years ago. I probably would have been, you know, a better husband, a better, you know, a better father, a better friend, a son, uh, 10 years ago, if I would have, I know that, uh, would have definitely have helped me as an individual. Well, let's talk about how it all kind of culminates. Um, and you talk about this very candidly. Uh, you had two operators that take their own lives uh their deaths are one month apart you were both part of their selection process you were a mentor to them you deployed with them in the teams the the sad and the interesting part all kind of mashed together you said you felt like we failed on our watch to identify what was affecting them and provide help but my question to you is because i really started thinking about that after i read that how do you identify the problem it's different for every single person. There's no magic looks. There's no magic words they're going to say, especially in the environment that you're in. So how can you look at that as a failure? I would say now and would be, you know, there are indications, right? So over drinking, um, financial problems, marital problems that are bad. Right. Like they're just like, you know, in the team room, they're bad. Right. And if and, and I wasn't any of these, uh, um, you know, my, my friends, um, um, leaders and obviously, you know, in small teams that the, the team, the nucleus will attempt to take care of it internally first. And then you go up the, the chain of command just to kind of understand what it is. Uh, you know, in retrospect, if 
I do, and there's one of them that I remember walking down the hallway and turning around and seeing his face and just going, that's, there's something, it's just something different, right? And, and, and it, it probably had nothing to do leading up to them. I, I can tell you as I've, there's a lot of thinking and there's a lot of guys that I've actually talked to now uh, that we all worked together when, when we lost these two guys, two guys and they've worked with them too. And, and we've gone back and we've introspectively talked to each other. And there were things now that I would tell you, yeah, there's a, there's, there's signs, there are tales, right? Again, I just said, you know, the drinking, the, 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 the family problem, the staying late, the not wanting to come do things. Or now I would say, because more importantly is, we know what those individuals have been through. That's point blank. Right now you've, you've interviewed a lot of guys that came from SF, SMUs and stuff like that. We've known we've put people through in the last 10, 15, 20 years. And so if you've been part of that and you've operated at these levels and you haven't gotten help, then you need to get help. And help can just be having a candid conversation. It can be a brain scan. It can, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I'm sorry. Like, it's a little bit more evasive. It's kind of one of those where you're like, hey, that that car needs a maintenance because he's been on the road for 50,000 miles, right? It's like that operator has been in this unit for 10, 15 years, and they haven't stopped deploying because there is no operator, for lack of better words, that gets to stay in the organization 5, 10, 15 years that that unit hasn't been putting them on the road consistently. And if that's so, and if you go back to the maintenance records, you know, and that person hasn't gotten treatment or their family hasn't gone to marriage counseling, or that person hasn't gone and gone to some kind of cognitive or some kind of medical, and it's just your typical come back in, go see the doc, check, you're certified to go back on status and get out the door. Right, and I I, uh, I don't have the stats, and this is probably one of the things I think that MSOF is looking at, is these this data showing where the folks that may have had problems or committed suicide, when you go look backwards, is there they were potential indicators. Well, I think the biggest eye-opening part of this to me was, you stated that it put you on your knees and in the darkest corner that you could imagine. What stuck out about that to me was you said you couldn't process it. You could, uh, the only thing that made sense was to immediately ask for help and be the example to others. But after everything you had seen in your life, everything, and, and believe me, you don't even have to say it. I know you've seen some bad things. What was it about this in particular with everything that you had done that rocked you so hard? They, are for all intents and purposes, even though we're different people, screen selected, trained, and kept in that organization just like me, right? So we look to the left and to the right of us, right? So a lot of our gauge of what's going on with us and my peers and my mentors is, okay, they're going through the same shit. I can relate to that, right? And, and again, these are, we travel in very small numbers we're very, very close to the folks that we work very close from, you know. And so when one guy did it, uh, the first, you know, friend did it, I was like, okay, that was weird. And we knew there was something going on. But then a month later when the second guy and he was on a different track, you know, um, his life situations were different, not to get into the details. 
Um, and then that literally made me look in the mirror and go, if I looked in the mirror to, to explain it to you, I can see both their faces. Well, that would I, beg I, I the know, that would beg the question to me then did you see your face mixed with theirs do you think you're the next one yeah why wouldn't i be because in in my eyes here's i i had been there not that what they have gone through wasn't bad i had been there and it, 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 i don't like how it sounds i'd been there longer um i i knew that i had done different things but I was already coming apart and that just opened that we were in perfect, that we, we can suffer from this. So, you know, no, no, that in the years that I've been there, no one else had, no one had committed suicide compared to the other tiers or, or the other organizations. So I, I, maybe that can paint a, a clearer picture. So since September 11, till then we had not lost anybody to suicide and across the force, there was a lot of numbers of, of that, right? And one of the things that we were good at is, you know, we can trust folks' resilience, their minds. You know, that's one of the reasons you select people, right? It's not only the physical piece. Yeah, they're 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 good physically, but it's that mental aspect of it. And when when they went to that limit, again, we're not we're not perfect. We're just we're obviously we're human beings. But I looked at that going. What made those two guys do it? And I, I'm realizing I'm I'm falling apart, but I didn't realize I had been that falling apart till that happened. That just crushed me, right? So any any aspect of me thinking, oh, you're okay, oh, then you're okay, right? You can get through it. And then I'm like, no, it just it my my soul just crushed, um, and it was an anxiety. It was just you know, it was it, it just came crushing down. I mean, I don't think. You know, besides probably losing guys downrange, um, if they would have been downrange, but I would have been here, that would have been bad. If I would have been down there with them and something happened, that would have been hard. But to have two guys to suicide versus combat, it, to me, was two different things. So let me ask you, and it might sound like a weird question. For years, we're talking over 20 years, You've been unstoppable. You've been a juggernaut. You've been everything that every kid that plays Army wants to be, right? And then you say that this completely breaks you down. I, I've got to understand what happens to the ego. It, I mean, with that, because you're, you couldn't get further away on the spectrum. I, I think I looked... I, I, you know, and I go back to that Pandora's box, right? And I, and I haven't fully, I don't think, got enough therapy. I've got good amount of therapy, but when, when I felt that way, I think it was just it, it wasn't it wasn't the chaos from deploying. Maybe that's a good that's a good thing. You know, when 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 I went, uh, and I mentioned this the other day, like I am now learning to be home. I don't think I was home for 20 years. I was always forward, right? I came to deployment home and then I went back to a mission. So my, my blood, what fueled me and my friends and, you know, the mission and was 
was serving, serving at that capacity. And so when, when again, those do, I, I obviously I felt that I was getting slower, right? You're getting older. You're, you know, I, I'm, I'm seeing the cognitive, I'm seeing the right. sleep issues, uh, the relationship, you know, in time. Right. And then you're like, okay, I'm obviously not a young guy anymore, but I'm like, okay, I'm not going to be able to, I was having um, just really quick vestibular issues. So muscular skeletal is one thing. I was having vestibular stuff, you know, vestibular. I got vertical really bad. I had to get take off of status. And they're like, okay, that's attributable to something really bad. So I started to realize my time was ending, right? Like I, you could only really do this this long. And to your point, because this happened home and and it was to me, it's whatever it is to 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 and and uh, to for attention pull that trigger for those guys to pull that trigger and to end it, um, it makes you think, why am I not doing that with all the moral injuries that I have with all of the guilt, with all of the stuff that obviously I'm having nightmares and this, I'm talking backwards, uh, that I, I didn't even know were in Pandora's boxes, but it's eating me internally, cognitively, emotionally, it's tearing relationships apart. Um, and then that happens, you know, and I think one of your guests had said it one time, you're just like, well, why am I not doing that? Why am I not taking that road? If two guys have done it, right? You, you just kind of, you go backwards from that. And, and again, and this is why I said I took a knee because it was way too easy to go down those same steps, right? Just like they did and go, well, do they know something I don't know? They're, you know, they're selected and, and, and stayed and in the same way. What what am I, why am I different than them? Um, and why am I not doing it? Because they have families, they have children, they have the same, right? And and I am at that at, at that point. So hopefully that answered it. It's, it, it, it's it does a deeper and... conversation to get to. Um, I don't know the answer. Um, yeah, no, no, no. I, I, I completely understand what you're saying. Uh, I think that was George Hand that you're talking about, uh, Geo, that was talking about comparing to the two. Um, an interesting thing, though, that you did was you, on social media, you initiated a buddy check system. You always post on there, hey, long weekend, check on your buddies, check on. What if they don't want to talk? Because that happens a lot. I will tell you that um, I have about 10 that are on my, you know, they're my team room, essentially, right? These are 10 guys that I've prioritized um, that I just for as long as I know that, as long as I've known them, what they've gone through, what they're going through, um, certain conversations we have had, or they keep off the radar, I pick up the phone, right? Or we have our, you know, each guy, this is the unfortunate from most guys is they all have the unique ways of communicating so my fail safe for some of these guys was I'll, 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 I'll go through the spouse. Hey, just tell so-and-so I'm trying to get a hold of them. Tell them I love them and I'm here. Right. Um, and you know, it's kind of like sending the so smoke signals or the chalk mark on the wall, right? Like they know we made contact or we went through the ways that we initiate. You know, I got one guy that does signal. The other guy does wicker. The other guy does, it doesn't matter. I reach out to those guys. And then also my platform are a way to get 
to most of these folks because if I, you know, I can tell they're monitoring. So I'll try that. Right. So some of it, even these buddy checks is yes to get other people to do it because it's starting, you know, to get folks to, Hey, if this person's checking on his buddy, maybe I should check on my buddy. That's great. But also overtly, hopefully that gets, that also is one way to get to those that maybe, maybe not answering the phone, but maybe they're, they're just, you know, in some, you know, white unicorn zero zero one, you know, is their IG handle they're, they're tracking. And I, and, and I know some <laughs> folks are, well, because that's the world we come from, right? Like I'm like, it's either the Chinese, the Russians, the North Koreans, or it's one of my, it's one of my friends that, you know, and they're, and they're in this handle and, and they're looking at this. So let's move on to your transition time, because I think of your entire story more than battles more than combat more than anything i think your life is the most upended during this and to read some of the things that you have put on paper to talk about some of the things that you talked about is unbelievable to me and it it shows how far you've come from back then till now um you said that it was time to transition or retire from the military Now, here's where it gets interesting. This would possibly become possibly one of my and now my family's most challenging missions ever. I was retiring as a Sergeant Major. However, I felt like day one entering the military as a private. I spent many hours, days, and long nights planning our next mission, but this time I could ask my spouse for her input. And more importantly, though, I was asking what she needed and wanted from the next phase of our life. Now, there's so many things to unpack just in that statement alone. When you talk about the most challenging mission ever, you're right. Your missions were home. You were gone for so long, um, missed so many things, just like a lot of law enforcement, a lot of military, a lot of first responders miss these things. But you talk about it being the toughest mission for them, too. So we've got to talk about how this is all affected the family, because we talked about your mental health at 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years. Now let's talk about their health at 5, 10, 15, 25. Of course, some weren't around at the five and 10 year mark, but we got to talk about the family dynamic because that's a huge part of this story. Yeah. So I'll preface it with my son uh, is 16 and he's never PCS. Okay. Uh, so he's born and raised in in the unit. Um, And so this is his life. And his life um, has always generally been daddy's gone, uh, daddy's training. And it really was mostly daddy's training or daddy's in Germany. That's really what I gave uh, my wife, which uh, I don't even know where to start to thank her um because it's me i told her hey unfortunately <laughs> the unit the unit's not going to thank you the army's not going to thank you you know we got we got spit out and uh and, and we're going to move out and it's now my responsibility once i, I learn how to walk normal and, and 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 hopefully crawl walk run as a civilian which is what i'm i'm trying to do at the same time that i heal and see what this family uh needs right and and how we go forward so um back to my wife um i met her um 
and I had just been in the unit for a little a little while, and she was she had uh, uh, came in from Brazil, so she was a foreigner. Uh, her her some of her family was here, and when she met me, she met me, you know, and this is really quick, because then and I'll speed it up. You know, she met me with a big beard. Uh, I had you know suave looking clothes. I was in D.C. We were in line to go to a nightclub. It was snowing, um, and she was speaking. Portuguese with her friend at that time I was learning Portuguese and so I initiate a conversation and <laughs> and this you know this, she just turned they turn around and they and she did she spoke no English by the way so my wife she's gonna laugh she all she knew how to speak was the book is on the table and so when we met uh I was going god this is a foreigner right TSSCI uh, they're not really in, in, in the organization engaging relationship with the foreigner is very complicated, right? Uh, but I'm like, hey, I didn't even think too much about it. it was the, the young guy who met her. And so we met and then subsequently we start to date and then I'm off and then I'm back and then I'm off and I'm back. And then at that point, it was literally a screening process. And so from the beginning, my poor wife, the first couple of years was literally a screening process. And there was no going to the base. There was no going to the unit. It was this proxy world of a lot of guys and girls coming over and we would have our parties and then suddenly folks were always gone. So she started that way, right, in, in this relationship. And she was only 21 years old, 22. Uh, and, I, and, and then, you know, and for her, September 11 had happened. And all of this time, remember, in, 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 you know, in, at least in South America, for her country with Brazil, they, they didn't have war, you know, they don't have wars, they don't, the military patriotism is in the same thing. And so I'm developing and cultivating this relationship and then subsequently get married with someone that culturally doesn't understand the US way of life, right, the military. And then this is not a real regular military because she's not going into a Fort Bragg or a Fort Benning. It's mostly from home where unit friends come over so it is also at that time it was hey i'm leaving i was going to place x i'm telling her i'm going to germany and then because again she's still a foreigner and the family's a foreigner they weren't you a citizen yeah just the the level of guilt and the crap that i've got to give back is ungodly and also that the last piece here was no social media so for the longest time her friends and her family back in Brazil, thought that she was a liar and got knocked up, got, you know, had a baby and wasn't really married because, you know, there was no pictures of Eddie which is how you say it in, in Portuguese, right? There was never any pictures of me on the internet. And so that's what my family life, and it's that also her family just respected that I was just working for the government and I was traveling and also around in this house was always sanitized. I didn't keep anything here. Um, a lot of, almost everything, 95% of it was at, back at, at the organization, right? So you can now imagine what this is like. And so she doesn't know what a PCS move, two, three, four years in a marriage isn't the same thing because now we're going five years married, 10 years married, 15 year married, right? Guys are, you're building relationships with other unit members that we're watching their children born all the way to their 14, 15, 16 as well. 
So when I say this is the hardest thing is because I'm now, you know, their life in the military, uh, I was, I probably cheated them out of PCSing and experiencing a normal life or even being married at the end to a sergeant major that may have had a better life. But my life was always the same, right? It was, I try to keep it consistent. And so transitioning out because we never thought about moving, we never thought about PCSing, we never thought about any, we never had to make those other decisions. It was always this gray world, essentially for 18 years, 16 years for my son, which was, okay, I'm not going to spend six more months in the military. Because again, to, to the conversation we had earlier, I had that devastating, you know, between my friends and I'm just, it made me take a knee and I'm like, okay, I'm heading towards, towards that retirement now. Um, and that point together was, is the worst part was me coming home and going, you know, op or my first friend committed suicide and me trying to conceal it as I concealed a lot of other issues and people dying throughout the force um, and things that had happened or near death experiences with me that I never talked about. Um, and then now me saying the words, Hey honey, I've been diagnosed with, well, the first one was, you know, uh, my friend committed suicide later on. It's attributable to PTS. Then as I asked for help two weeks later, when I come back from the medics, there's, they diagnosed me with PTSD. Right. And then I come and I tell my wife, at that point, nothing is ever wrong with me, right? Except the few times that maybe I had some elective surgeries, I really never had anything wrong that I would declare. I tell her they diagnosed me PTS in my, at that point, my 14 year old hears daddy's friend committed suicide because he has PTS and daddy has PTS. That's the first time my son has really ever seen anything majorly wrong with me. Um, that was critical. And now how am I supposed to get out? And so as I'm transitioning almost every other day or every other week, there's an illness, right? Sciatic nerve injuries, you've got TBI, you've got all of these problems. And so my wife is going, what are we going to do? Because now the army is going to give me back, excuse my French, this piece of shit. You have been constantly able to travel and deploy at a moment's notice. And now that I need you to be the husband, to be the father, after you know 28 years at this point of service, you can literally at sometimes barely walk because you've got muscular skeletal, you're having memory problems, you're having anger problems. You had friends commit suicide, God knows what's going in your head. And so what that means is what kind of livelihood are we going to have? And where are we going to go? Right? Like, really, where are you going to go? What sort of job am I going to find? Now, I was fortunate that one thing that kept me motivated, and this goes back to some of that mental resilience, I, because my parents and family did not have an education, I had really good mentoring when I was in the unit to pursue education. I always used education and reading and, and, and learning in my darkest time, it was something that I always did, right? I always wanted to learn, I, even if it was in whatever aspect. So I would 
I went and continued to do my degrees while I was in the unit in an hellacious rotation. But even then, now my wife, again, to her words, are like, but you're a piece of shit. That's why I said this was literally starting life all over. I should have been ending my military career as an E9, two de- you know, almost two master degrees, all of these accomplishments, all of this training, all of this certification. But I can barely want to get out of bed because of the levels of depression, the levels of, of, of you know, therapy that was still ahead of me. So uh, that begs the question, what's your family's new role in your life? Because they're going from a supporting cast to main players. And to that point, do they like you? Do they know you? And, and quite frankly, do you know them? I know them. They have, uh, in, in bottom line, said at, at times, um, I would, I don't know, we don't know you, right? Because as Pandora's boxed open, you go through these days and weeks of living that manila envelope and seeking that therapy, right? Because it's going to be a long time before I don't do something that's in some level of protectiveness. It's just the way it's in my DNA, right? So I'll do my therapy or I'll go to, even though I'm very good, normally it is the effect of acid. For example, she knows that the week after next, I'm going to go through my third SGB. So this wasn't, okay, the first two were, this is critical or I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be very bad if I don't get these treatments. So, hey, this is our get better plan. So there's a lot of conversations. There's a lot of um, sometimes by proxy. Some of the things that I say on Instagram is a form of communications. Sometimes there are things that I may post that my wife says, I, I don't get it. Why did you say that? Or why do you say one thing, but it appears you're doing other things, right? Um, you, know, you, you say take care of, uh, you know, folks take care of your families, but it doesn't seem like you're taking care of the family here. That's a hard one, right? Well, it's true. I'm, I'm, I'm trying, um, you know, have these conversations and we're working towards certain things. But sometimes, you know, the leader in me, if you would, or the person trying to help the veterans knows, okay, you, you, you should say these things because you've learned to say these things from your experience. But the hardest thing is really sometimes talking to your 16-year-old who's a 16-year-old or your spouse who's like, okay, I don't want to hear that crap today. Right. Like you go to your side of the house. I'm going to go to my side of the house and tomorrow we're going to do it again. Through all this, you say that you are unpacking 28 years, PTSD, TBIs, gunshot wounds, moral injuries. But the interesting one on there to me was fear. Fear of what? The biggest thing I've feared is compromise. Uh, Compromising, compromising where I worked and the ability to, A, there's some things that I hope sometimes when I'm sleeping, I don't say. Uh, It's just that aspect, right? Like even right now doing, you know, Echo 9 Axiom, um, I had to do a lot of thinking about how do I go about 
talking about my past and where I come from, you know, and I, and I try to keep it. Uh, so there's, there's some fear in, in that, like, comp like literally I I've spent the, the last 20 years in, in particular protecting an organization, protecting my ability to continue to serve. And sometimes that, and maybe you can relate to it, you know, um, you know, and I don't know if this is what you mean when, when I when I met fear, but that was a big fear for me, right? Like a big fear for me was not paying bills on time or going in debt or getting a ticket and then losing my clearance or not being able to deploy because of all of this training, all of this mindset, all of the sacrifices that till now I didn't realize I was doing with friends and family, isolating them. Uh, that's a fear. There's a fear of... I've, you know, there's moral injury um, that I'm still processing, right? There's a lot of guilt and guilt is things you said, uh, you, things you say and, you know, things you haven't said. I, I told my wife um, and predominantly her like, hey, I don't necessarily, I haven't lied to you, but I haven't, I, I wasn't able to tell you the truth, right? And so that weighs on you. Right, the same thing we just talked about. Hey, I, I know I'm I know where I'm going. My team knows where I'm going. I just can't tell you. Well, that's all neat and, and sexy and fun for the last 19 years. But when you're now a civilian, you're like, fuck. How many times did you say like that's not normal? Or like that weighs on you. And I, you know, and and so there's that fear. Um and then there's fear of you know, I feel better now. There was a lot more fear maybe two years ago as I was getting ready to leave. I was in such pain, muscular, skeletally. My cognitive was, you know, my I just couldn't remember things. I just felt like I was a piece of poo-poo, right? Like all of that training, all of that experience, and I'm getting to the finish line, and I am now not about to have a career. I know I wanted to do, you know, additional things I thought I needed to do getting out of the military and in special operations. I then realized that that was just probably my ego or my, just what I was conditioned to do. I have a very satisfied life now helping veterans and, and, and obviously taking care of my family. Um, ho hopefully that answers. And if, if you need to expand on, on some of that fear. No, no, no. I, that's exactly what I was looking for was because I think that people think of fear as very concrete things. And, and I think with you and I think with a lot of people, it's more of a mental thing. It's not a concrete thing that you're scared of. Um, you're, you're scared of failure and all these things that people have never had to deal with, because let's be honest, special missions unit, you don't fail that often, if ever, mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? So you go yep. 20, 25 years and never failing to falling on your face. That's a scary, scary thing. Well, you fail here, and again, uh, um, uh, uh, there the that that the mirror changed, right? So now, this is my mission. My mission is home, and so this is not what I've been used to doing. This is what I've been used to avoiding. I've been used to avoiding almost with everything that I was trained to do, avoiding being home, right? Just long enough that I can deploy again, long enough that you know. And I haven't got into those photos yet, where I am sitting around. And there's photos taken of me in the last 20 years in, in family functions, and I'm on the computer or I'm 
I wasn't at that party. I wasn't at my son's birthday party. I'm literally researching aspects of what I need to do or I'm, I'm learning another language or I'm taking my wife and family through Germany or, or wherever we're going and I'm doing tradecraft training, right? Like I am just constantly nonstop reinforcing what we're doing all the time. And now I'm just like, how am I supposed to really be a husband? How am I really supposed to be a dad? You know, my son's up there playing Call of Duty <laughs> and he's like, yeah, wh whatever, dude. And it's just like, you weren't here. Like, now is not the time to talk about that. I'm like, oh, God. right? And that that is a fucking blow to the gut. Like, there's no tomorrow. It's one thing to, to you know, we fail. I mean, that's part of our adapting. You know, you, you know it's not total failure, but right. you're, you're adjusting all the time when you're downrange all the time. And that's what, you know, we don't give up type thing. But when you're here and that family gets upset at you and they turn around and they walk away from you, you're just like, oh, fuck. What now? I can't go to the team room because I can't get back in the building, right? Right. Like I'm gonna have to sit here and absorb it now, um, you know. And even though some of that mental, like, and it's a good point about even some of the mental stuff, I, I will go back to essentially if you would like a rolodex of your training. I'm like, I'm gonna, you know, and I and I have an argument with my wife or something happens or you you hit a speed bump now as a civilian. I'm like, I'm gonna go find a little corner and I'm gonna roll up. And I'm going to crawl up into a little ball, right? And sometimes I'll have, you know, I did that before. Then there was things that I started to slowly come back, which is go for a walk, right? So I, I did start reaching back to my toolkit, but it was really, it was really desperate in that, in that aspect to like, I'll go, okay, I can, I can do the civilian thing. Just, you know, go back to therapy, which we're not used to doing therapy, go back to those tools, you know, right? And so that's helped me. But it's help, also helped my family when my wife's like, hey, it's time for you to go for a walk. Because when you go for a walk, you come back, right? So, Well, and we'll get into get up uh, and go uh, in a little bit. Um, I, I want to ask the last two things before we get into the therapy, the, the meat of this. I want to know your biggest piece of progression after getting out and going through all this. Your, your best thing that's happened to you in your progression and I want to know your biggest setback progression would be sleep right my ability to enjoy sleep to really want to sleep uh, it's probably been been biggest thing because I've always known sleep is important, but I, it just seems that every time you're out the door, you always forego sleep because you're always, you know, A, you're doing everything for long hours, or you don't realize then to your point earlier, 5, 10, 15 years, you're actually sleeping less because you're all fucked up, right? Like you're putting your, your you're going to sleep because you're drinking, you put, you're exhausting yourself mentally. And then you're getting up three to four hours later and you're actually operating. Uh, some, some other guy said it, you're like dangerously operating, right? And so in my uh, transition process uh, medically in some of the treatment, once I learned to sleep um, well and, and how that made me feel cognitively, emotionally, and my um, 
just the, my, my behavior and how that reflected with my family, that was key, right? And that I'm really big now on, on just on sleeping and uh, in, in, in the power behind it. Setback would still be, it, it's probably like some levels of doubt um, in aspects to, you know, in doing some of the stuff for, for Echo 9, um, and when I look at some of these photos, uh, I don't only post a photo just because it's a cool guy photo. Uh, I, there's a, I try to use it. It's kind of part of my art therapy, right? So that art therapy, um, I'm, I'm horrible at drawing. So I, I was able to go to the digital photo and then create words or meaning out of it, right? So either if I remember what I was thinking or going through during that photo or fear are related to that. But on some occasions in some of this intro, you know, looking in and, and even trying to do some writing, I'm trying to capture some of it. Um, it will take me down these little rabbit holes that I hadn't fully opened. So it's kind of like I became more vulnerable uh, the longer I've been out um, because of the importance to take care of family. And that meant get through get through that therapy aspect faster. And so sometimes that therapy will knock me down. Like it'll just have an emotional impact. But now I'm like, okay, there's no more putting it back in Pandora's box, right? Before in therapy, they're like, hey, we're only going to open it for a little bit because you got to get through stage one. Because if you go straight to the deep end, you may drown, Eric. And so it is probably now absorbing those things are a little harder for me. I, I think that's, you know, it, it, hopefully that's what, what answers for you is that. And, and what that will do for me sometimes is it, it'll hurt your motivation to sometimes, like if I work from home a lot and I don't get out and, and have uh, some other things to do, it, it, it can make you take a knee, right? Like you can be happy-go-lucky, motivated, right? You just came from a walk, but you open that little box and you start thinking about it because you want to work through it. Um, it. It can hurt. Well, let's talk about all these therapies because that's how we kind of came across each other. And um, this SGB is awesome. I, I watched you the other night. You hosted a deep dive uh, with a lot of different things. And I got to be honest with you. It, it, I thought there was some strange things that came out now when they started talking about the psychedelics and, and different stuff like that. What was interesting about it though, when I saw all that stuff is how hard I think they're trying to break through in one way or the other to really get a hold of this problem because it's a problem. It, it don't anyone fool yourself that it's not a problem because it is, but it was, so I guess the word would be comforting to hear that so many people are trying so many different approaches to get PTS under control. And let's start with SGB because you've already talked about it once. Uh, I've talked to Dr. Lynch on here and then his partner, Sean Mulvaney. You're getting ready to go in for your third one. I want you to tell because as we talk to him about it and what it's about and what it can do, I want you to tell being you everything that you went through and getting that, how you felt and what it did for you. So the first one, uh, I cried. 
I literally was a ball of tears when when I woke up. Um, it felt just like folks would say, you know, it, it like you took off that seventy five pound ruck that you had been wearing for six hours. It just just physically, it just felt like you just your your body's relaxed, and then all of a sudden, you know, once you're feeling like I, it felt relieved and light. Um, and then I went straight to sleep when, when, by the time I got home and then I was, I, I had slept like I hadn't slept in 20 something years. Um, it was just an, an amazing sleep. But when I got up and I got through a little bit of the sort of drogginess and, and I, I, I was like a little, I was like a little baby, right? Like I I was telling my wife she had to contact my PA and, and I'm like, I don't know what this is about because I was very skeptical about it. But then I was feeling I was feeling good. I had gotten sleep and then I went back up to go to the bed and I had done it post the guys committed suicide and it and that thought had just came in uh and I just started to cry. And then I started to just it just it was just this I hadn't been able to cry, right? Like I and again I had seen horrors, things that happened. And even when the guys had killed themselves, um, I, I hadn't had that emotion. I wasn't able to cry at that level. And it was just like deep crying. Um, and it also relaxed me, right? Because I was balled up. I was angry. I think I threw like a chair across the living room at some point weeks prior to that, because you didn't realize that you had, right, all the PTS, you also have these flares of anger. And, you know, um, and then I felt myself being able to calmly process stuff. And then which was good with my wife, she was able to tell me that I looked different, my shoulders were down, I looked rested, she saw me cry, right, I was emotional, or we would start talking about something. And then I was just start, you just start bawling. Um, yeah, that, that was then for me from the beginning of the therapy, because at that point I hadn't asked for help. Right. And I don't know if before that they put you like, on if I had done the SGB and then antidepressant or one of the other ones came, but that had its greatest impact. I want to say the SGB was first that had its greatest, just re it literally was just imagine just something that hurts you for 20 years and then all of a sudden you're just like okay that 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 feels amazing second one second one was then part of when i went to nickel so even though i had that sgb i was feeling good um there were other things that now were the stresses of getting out of the military right going through the paperwork getting out of the uh the army, the 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 uh, special operations system, and going to the regular and de dealing with the regular. It was just a lot of now that anxiety and that stress. And then I went to NICO, to uh, National Intrepid Center of Excellence for Traumatic Brain Injuries, and during that process, that was then mixed with the the program that I was going through. So I had done sleep therapy again. I had done. They had done then some uh, tests and and um, which also became stressful because they're like, hey, you've got TBIs. Yes, you have PTS at this level. You have um, so 
you know, Nyko was kind of like a two by four to the head as far as medical, because my docs would just patch you up, right? They were incredible at patching us up, but I'm like, stop patching me up because I need to retire. I need to put this shit in the system or I'm not going to take care of my family when it comes time to the VA, right? So Nyko, even though I was learning art therapy, music therapy, and I was getting, you know, good treatment, it's also a two by four to the gut because every time I got home after the session, they're like, you've got this, you know, you got celiac or you've got this in your hands or you've got these tears or we got these spots in your brain or you're just like, oh my God, right? That's what I was telling you earlier. You just feel like I'm right. a piece of crap. Right. So I'm like, can I go get a second SGB, right? And they're like, oh, well, and it was part of the therapy and plus that therapist, and there's a key point here, it's external talk therapy. When I was inside my organization, there are people that had known me for 15 years. So talking to a therapist that's known you for a long time, there's a bias, right? And so when you start all over with, and that team at Nyko is amazing because it's like 12 professionals and one lead doctor. These people just start all over from the beginning. They don't know you, but they're just taking all of this data and they're actually asking you things in a way that you didn't even know the answer until they asked you in a certain, that's how I actually knew that I had been suffering from PTS when I had gotten shot. It wasn't until I was there that that then manifested. And they're like, aren't you aware you already have PTS? I'm like, absolutely not. That second STB was then a, like a um, it helped me get through that transition medical process. Because again, it just removed, you know, another layer of that back, another backpack that I had, um, which, you know, which will is where I'm at now with the third one, which is, okay, I'm now at the third phase, I think, of my transition as a civilian and the little pieces of the Pandora's box that I've been opening. But really it's because I've been TDY at home now for a year and a half. So it's time to now process that aspect and these new, I don't want to say they're new manifestations of PTS, but there are things that were probably so deep at the bottom of the totem pole that I now need to um, also you know, use the SGB to help me continue to heal and grow better. Well, wouldn't you agree, though, that some of that stress, too, is the new role you've taken on in life? That's post-traumatic stress. It's been a year now. It, well, I mean, here's what, you know, and, and you know the stats. I mean, you know, most uh, guys that come from, or girls, I guess, that come from these units, um, you're getting divorced a year out. So a, a lot of the divorces uh, are actually been happening a year as a person's getting out and a year, a year and a half after, as well as that's the window for suicide. So we've, there's a lot of suicides post-retirement, right? So you enter, so I, you know, and, and when I wrote that before, I, w I wasn't as clear, but it is literally another little war, right? Post-retirement, uh, there are times that you don't know where this, how this relationship is going to go. Because, you know, my wife has, you know, what is it, uh, secondary PTS as, you know, uh, what is it? Tom Satterley's Jen Satterley talks about uh, that the spouses also. So now 
they are also talking about their PTS and their stresses, right? That brings, I mean, there are things that we've talked about that I'm just like, oh my God, you're talking about something that's 19 years ago, but it's just as vivid for my spouse yesterday as it was 19 years ago. So you're right, that is causing a level of stress because uh, for all intents and purposes, we forget about it or we've moved on from it because we've, you know, but it's here and alive. So now you got to work through that. Or you never knew about it because you said you a never... lot during your deployments, there wasn't a lot of talking about stuff that was going on. You, you don't talk about it or you didn't listen. And, and that's, I, I want to say more so, I probably didn't listen and, and, and it just, she was probably telling me and I'm, I will, I, I, one thing that I, I had with my spouse, I've said, Hey, I'll, I'm pretty sure that if you say I did something wrong, there's a high likelihood that I did fuck it up, <laughs> that I do take responsibility because as I look back, I'm just like, man, dude, you, you were, you just worried about getting out the door, right? Like that's all. And I would sacrifice meaning yes, honey, whatever, you know, somebody will come fix it and then boom, I'm out. Right. And now I'm having to feel those emotions and, you know, and I, essentially it's you're you're both going through therapy in, in some form. Well, you, you listen to the show you have for a while, you hear guy after guy or person after person on the show say the exact same thing. And that's a big point that I always try and drill into because it's crazy to think about as a normal person or as a normally prudent person, it's weird to say I couldn't wait to get away to go do this. And then when it's all over, you go, well, I missed out on all this stuff because I couldn't take my head out of the game for five seconds. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, how, you know, that's a really good point. And, and, and it, it, you know, so yeah, they're, they're essentially you know, the, the Pandora's boxes from, from work, I guess equally would be those containers of things that I missed that, you know, one of the things I love doing now as a civilian and, 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 you know, our minds were constantly engaged as we talked about the fight, the fight, the mission, the training. Uh, I now post retirement, one of the things I like to do, and I recommend to people, I'm going back to that. Well, that honey to do list never went away. And the Eric to do list, right? Like there are things that are, I want to do, like, I want to scan photos that are, 20 years old, you know, that they were the paper photos or, you know, and then I'm looking at them and I'm scanning and I'm seeing pictures that I don't remember. I don't remember my kid riding bicycle, my kid in that soccer game. And again, that, you know, that's a gut punch because I care and I love my family. And then I realize, and I've even gone back to go, okay, what was the date on that photo? I'm like, Oh yeah. December, 2006, the selfish, me is going, yeah, you were getting blown up. You're in a firefighter in Ramadi looking for HBT number, whatever. Eric home now is going, yeah, but your son was learning how to ride bike or your son always got sick when I left. Right. And so that impact of that reality is settling in. So as you know, probably a recommendation as we kind of talk our way through that is, is that as if you're at the point that where I'm at now and the, the person's are retiring. Like it's hard. Like you got another, <laughs> there's another phase. That's why I mentioned this other next phase to me is harder because I don't, I'm, again, I don't, I don't, I can't go back to the team room and, and get the tools from the team room. Like it's, 
I got to wake up and, and get the strength. And, I, and my mission now is take care of my family. It is take care of me, which also a lot of guys didn't really take care of themselves. I think it's that emotional side. We didn't. We took care of our bodies. We took care of our ability to shoot, move, and communicate. But we really didn't take care of our minds and our emotions. That I think is something, you know, as you mentioned, that I think it's very key for folks to understand, hey, man, you can be a good operator or whatever you do, but you got to take care of that mind. And that's not really that mental health aspect of it. Talk to us about military special operations family. Uh, I think that this is kind of the culmination of your story. Um, Everything, especially in the last word of it, family and collaborative. Um, family, because that's what you're focused on now, collaborative as you're taking everything that you've done from knowing what to do in the military, from being that mentor and now being a civilian and a dad and a husband and putting it all into this. So let's talk about that. Thank you. Yeah. I, and I appreciate that opportunity. So what I really like about, uh, MSOFT, so military special operations, family collaborative, and it's a nonprofit, right? And so they've been around two or three years. Um, and they are about the research, the education, and the connection, right? There are lots of nonprofits. And before uh, they you know, kind of became a team member with them, I was on the board of directors on another nonprofit that was very specific uh, to you know, a, a segment of special operations. Um, but what MSOFT does is ensures that they are gathering, for example, SGB, right? Like, hey, here is the research, here is the proving data, and then educating, essentially, uh, you know, leadership. Um, you know, they, they have done and, and done training at the, at the Army Special Operations Command. So certain commands have asked MSOFT through their sort of uh, training curriculum. And it's just a perspective, right? They get the data, they get the research, they have all the resources, and then they they, they teach a command. And I think that's important, right? Uh, and the reason I like it is, you know, obviously I came, you know, I came from one place 20 years and certain organizations, just like anything, have their own cultures. But what that also means is then they have their own ways of thinking. That can also be good, but that also can be bad. And so, Sometimes you can't help yourself if you group think, right? And so what, what I like what MSOF is doing is going, I can probably have gone back, and this is just a wild example. You know, our organization, the organization I came from was good about SGB because I did get the opportunity to go, but maybe they may not be very leaning forward as maybe the SEALs who may be looking, they, you know, I think they were earlier on looking at psychedelics or some other sorts of treatments. Well, what MSOF is doing is literally going across the board and looking at these best practices, looking at the research, right? And then sharing that information. And so you're not stuck going, okay, this is just the way that, you know, special forces wants to do it, where the Rangers want to do it this way, the SEALs are doing it this way, this SMU is doing it that way, and then the Air Force is doing it one way. This at least, I don't have to worry about those little tribes. It is just that this level is proven data, proven research, right? Best practices. And then you bring in, uh, as you as you said in that last one, we had amazing doctors talk about 
one aspect of treatment. And what we're trying to do is just like what I'm doing is sharing my story, but look at other folks who have gotten some of these treatments um, that are now leading treatments. And, and we share that information. Hey, the SEALs are, are, have been working at this. The Rangers are doing this. SF Command is looking at this. And I think that's just incredible to be able to share that information. And then the collaborative is, there's a lot of people sharing information back with us, which is, is great. Well, what's next for you? I'm in my crawl phase, right? Okay. So right now um, we are thinking about moving. Um, this will be the, for me and for my family, the last phase of really disassociating from the military because we have been here so long um you know and, and it's you know it's somebody had told me about like you you really have to when you retire it's recommended that you either you know you you move on right unless you you were fortunate enough to be working or, or you were stationed somewhere where your family like your your you know, your, your family's from um i didn't know where maryland was when i was in hialeah right just kind of jokingly and i and i or this you know this national capital region uh for so long that you know Again, that was as you had mentioned. I asked my wife, "Where, where do we want to go? You've, you've got the opportunity." So, we're looking at, at going to Florida, right? So that's one aspect. Is um, and I'm used to doing a million things at one time. I've now realized, nope, let's focus right now and, and give it a lot of attention on as a family preparing to get up and move. And what and what does that go with it? Meaning I've secured, obviously, my pension uh, as a retired E9. I put the time in with my family and, and the work to get my, you know, my VA compensation. So I'm comfortable with that aspect of it, right? Where if I need to choose a different career to take care of my family, I can do that, right? So I have some options. I either stay in the in the you know in the in the defense industry or I go work for Google or I, I set up and become an entrepreneur. I, I, I have those I have that option um, openly that, that can support my family. And so literally right now I'm at the whiteboard. I'd like to um, later on continue to pursue higher education. Um, you know I, I was focused before I wanted to finish a PhD, I realized with all the cognitive issues I had before, it was more of a, a struggle. But now as I look at that aspect, I, I want to bring in more of, for example, this stuff with PTS, TBI, military endurance. So um, you know, nothing easier than think about writing a paper or a document and working backwards to try to solve something. So I'm going to challenge myself in, in that aspect. Well, you have an amazing story uh, from start to finish, uh, from Cuba to all the way here. Do you do you ever look back and just I know there's been a lot of trauma. I know there's been a lot of uh, triumphs, but just how blessed you've been to have this life that you've had. Yeah, I feel uh, absolutely um, blessed uh, I thank my my parents for my family for taking that that courageous flight, uh, leaving you know Cuba, um, and and coming to Hialeah, and then those people that welcomed my family. So I will always 
remember that, what it is to be an immigrant um, and um, the opportunities and, and take advantage and not take advantage of them and serve, but yeah, take advantage of them in, in aspects to, to give back. Um, been fortunate to, to, to have met my wife and, and have my wonderful, you know, my son um, and just amazing people that I've met. And, you know, and there's a part of it of, of what I've been able to accomplish. Um, there's still a part of me that I've learned to now look at the news, you know, and go, okay, that's not, that's not my war physically anymore. My, my next battle, as I've mentioned, is I know as a leader uh, is to give back, you know, if I can give back to those that are in service right now, help them, help their families and their children, right? Provide a perspective. It's just, I can share my vulnerabilities as a strength and give that uh, perspective to someone, then I know I have a continued mission, right? And that's purpose and we all need purpose. So that's important. Um, and so I'm, I'm happy now. I'm just, you know, trying to take care of that family trying to take care of uh, myself to be a better person um, and just in, in enjoying life and just blessed. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I'm going to go down a list of where everyone can get a hold of you and kind of donate to the organization. Now, Military Special Operations Family Collaborative, that is msofc.org. I'll say it again, msofc.org. You can actually go to that website, learn more about what's going on, learn about their team members, and learn about the mission that they're doing. You can also go there and donate, and that really helps out the organization by donating to them. Also, if you want to find Eric, you can find him on Instagram at echo9.axiom and echo9.hopes. You can find him on Facebook at all capital letters, echo9, or you can find him at Eric Miari's. Is there anywhere else that they can find you or anything else that you want to plug? Just that, just that you can find me on LinkedIn from a professional perspective. Uh, but for the most part, um, you know, if you want to follow me on IG, that's great. That's normally where I like to put the information on, on Axiom. And then, uh, you know, it, folks can communicate with me on, on DM. It takes me a little while to get back to them, but uh, I do tend to, to get back to folks and, um, thank you for the opportunity to be in here and share my story. And as always, I'm always so surprised of what actually comes out, uh, depending the the host. And you've been just been amazing of asking that question and being patient with me. And, uh, and I appreciate that. Well, guys, I think that's going to be it for the show tonight. Uh, you know, if you want more of me, you can always find me on Instagram at the DTD underscore podcast. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD podcast. You can find me on YouTube where all these conversations are in video form at the DTD podcast. Guys, don't forget to talk with our partners or look at their website at the Stellar Institute. This SGB thing, I'm telling you, is an amazing, amazing procedure that is helping tons of people and they hope to help millions more that's going to be it for tonight that's eric i'm dj this has been the show we'll catch you guys on the next one see you later